Hello, and welcome to the Executive Security Podcast, where we talk to CISOs and other leaders in cybersecurity space about their careers. My name is Gene Fay. I'm the CEO of API security company ThreadX and the host of the Executive Security Podcast. Today, we've got a really exciting guest, Tom Quinn, CISO at T. Rowe Price. Welcome, Tom. How are you today? I'm doing great, Gene. Thanks very much for having me on today. We appreciate it. I know we're going to focus on uh, kind of careers in cybersecurity, but today, February 24th, a lot going on in the Ukraine and just wondering your perspective as a CISO and kind of what are you thinking about as an organization with something uh, some, something so major going on in the world? Yeah, firstly, my, my heart goes out to to the mm. citizens in the Ukraine. You know, we actually have uh, Ukrainian employees working for our firm, and I know that they have families there, so that's uh, tragic. But in, in regards to the, the day job and what we're doing, we're really very forward-leaning into ensuring that we're protecting our clients' information from a resiliency perspective. We're, we're making sure, right, that we're prepared for potential you know, negative outcomes, and certainly doing quite a bit of communicating with our peers in the financial services industry for threat intelligence and the like, so that we can be as prepared as we can be if there is a negative outcome for for cyber that may impact the financial services industry. Yeah, I think everybody's definitely got to be at another level of alertness in terms of what's going on uh, in the world right now and the potential for this whole kind of fifth element of war and warfare and, and what what impact it can have. And unlike traditional warfare, we as organizations have to protect ourselves. So I think it'll be an interesting uh, couple of weeks and months to see how things uh, shake out. Uh, so let's uh, jump into cyber careers. I, I was actually just listening to one of the bankers, Momentum Cyber, just had Roger Hershevac, Gary Fish, Dave DeWalt, and a couple other kind of luminaries in cybersecurity uh, talking about a bunch of things, but a, a good portion of it was talk, talking about the fact that there are 3 million open positions in cybersecurity right now. And uh, I just you know, would want, love to hear a little bit about your background and kind of, did you have a, a grand plan to become a CISO? And I know you're uh, eight years in, in the Navy as a uh, retired uh, Naval officer, and thank you very much for your service. So I'd love to just learn a little about your background and kind of ha- how you ended up with the role you have today. Yeah, so I really never did have a plan uh, for becoming a CISO, <laughs> and it, it just came to me over time. But I've always liked to understand how things work. I was uh, fortunate enough to be a political science major in international relations, so it gave me an opportunity to really have a rigorous background in economics and history and statistics. And and I use those things every day, right, in in, um, helping the firm and and running our program. And then, but I've been doing tech since, you know, 94 or so. So that's really my start down the path of a cybersecurity or an information security career. And what I found was it was technology was very interesting But what I really started getting drawn towards as we were perfecting the technology we had, better understanding the technology we had, what are the next set of problems to solve? And what I found is that curiosity for what kind of problems are there, what would happen, those kind of things naturally led myself into a a cybersecurity information security career. And for, I think the other side about it too, is it was a natural evolution. I was a, I've been an individual contributor. I've been a team lead, uh, I've been a manager and a cybersecurity executive too. 
And those were just natural, organic, next interesting jobs to take. So that was really it. And, and I got to the point of my career where I did ask myself the question, and I was well into my career, do I really want to be a CISO? And did I understand what it meant to be? Right. And I think both of those questions are important because there could be a desire to have that as a goal, but not understanding the nature of the position, right? The nature of being in that seat means it could dissuade people. It just may, they may realize, hey, that's not really what I'd like to do, or hmm. maybe that's exactly what I'd like to do. I think what you, what you really hit on some really interesting points there, and one is a, a great liberal arts background, non-technical, and then the military aspect of it, and ultimately culminates in a very technical job. So I guess if you were to talk to people that, that are thinking about getting into cybersecurity or wondering how to get into cybersecurity, and to your point, don't have pure technical skills, what advice would you give them in terms of where do you start the journey? So it's, it's a great question and a couple things, right? One, cybersecurity is everyone's business. And there are roles for everybody to play for cybersecurity, both personal roles, as well as career roles and alike. And I'll make a plug for an organization I, I spend a bit of time with called Girl Security. They're out of Chicago. And what this organization is doing is preparing young women for future careers in government policy organizations for cyber. I, I raise that as an example is that there's a lot of things one could do. There's a lot of areas um, that you can invest in and that everyone needs help. Don't feel that just because you may not be overly technical or have a lot of experience doing technology that you don't have a role, that you can't be helpful, and that you don't have a voice because you... No, said I was meeting with the athletic director at Northeastern University where I'm an alumnus and I was thinking about uh, a lot of the student athletes uh, that aren't going to go on to play the pros need jobs. And they've got a great group of you know, high caliber students and also highly competitive students. And I'm like, these are the people that we need brought into cybersecurity. Like those are the skill sets we need. And it's also a great aspect of helping us with our lack of diversity. So bringing in diverse people with different backgrounds to really help to try to do this. And what I'm talking with the students about is like, Exactly what you said, Tom. It's not all technical. It's not all hands on keyboards. There are over 6,000 cybersecurity companies that need marketing people, that need finance people, that need entry-level support people. And all, our, all of our organizations, again, go back to that number of 3 million, 3 million open positions today. According to Gartner, that number is only going up. We all have to be willing to train. And I think the other aspect of it uh, that I want to, I haven't done much work on, but I want to get after it, which is working with a lot of the two-year programs that are local to me in New England and spreading the word like, hey, if you've got an associate's to come this way, we, we need you as well. And then the last piece, which I hit on before, which is the military. Like maybe you have no educational experience, but you've got that cat and mouse mentality, even if it was not hands on keyboard, but hands on a gun. We need you too. We need all hands on deck to really to deal with, with the lack of talent that we have today in the market. It's a great point. I, I think another plug I'll have is friends of mine, Ron and Cindy Gould, entrepreneurs, cyber entrepreneurs, yes, also philanthropic as well. And one of the things that they've recognized in that same vein is making it more approachable, right? Careers in the space more approachable. And they're really trying to 
rally others around this concept of data safety and as a, that branding allow more and more people to try to, to get in there to reduce the barriers for somebody self-checking, right? Hey, I can't do this. I, I'm not, I don't understand it or I can't do it or how do you make it more approachable? There are people that are trying, I think there's quite a few people that are trying to open more of the doors, make things more approachable for, for people. And, and I agree with you, Gene, there is a role for, for everyone. I happen to also be the, the executive sponsor of my company for veterans. And uh, we are spending quite a bit of time in that same vein. And, and I think fortunately, uh, we have significant offices in both Maryland and Colorado and, and fortunately for us, right, there's large military uh, organizations there. So it's really an opportunity for us to take advantage of talent pools uh, that are right in our backyard and then helping, uh, also helping veterans, I think is a, a critically important thing as well. Yeah, t- t- totally agree with you. I, I talk about it in terms of dollars. I'm a sales guy at, at heart, but the average salary in the U.S. is $43,000. The average salary in cyber is $127,000. If we can help our military go from serving our country, and thank God they're doing that, to finding six-figure paying jobs, like there's nothing more fulfilling that I, I think I can do in terms of helping to make this a better place and a safer place. It's just natural on that aspect of it. And I think the other piece of it is really trying to connect all of us in cybersecurity today are responsible for opening doors for other people. Like the old Ben Franklin principle, what's in it for you in this situation? Nothing. It's about giving back. So when people reach out to me on LinkedIn, and I know you can get overused, and I can only imagine, Tom, the number of LinkedIn requests you get from salespeople and things like that. But I think we have to be on the lookout for people looking for jobs and opening our network to them. And and it costs us nothing. And if we can take somebody, whether from a diverse background or somebody with an associate's degree or somebody with a military degree or somebody with all of the above, and we can help them come into cyber, it's good for us. It's good for the industry. And we're helping somebody to find a high paying job. They're going to pay more in taxes. Like It's a full circle effect of goodness for things that we want to see happen in the world. Yeah, I'm in, I'm in agreement with you. And, and also too, I think most everybody needs to contend with pretty basic things like budgets for Mm. programs that they have. And it's expensive to get very experienced people in the cyberspace. And I think you have to have a combination of getting younger people in that may be less experienced, training and growing them through your programs, and also bring talent experienced people in where you need to as well. I often think about this. I think you were talking about sport players or basketball players and at uh, Northeastern, I think about it like the challenges that general managers have on professional sports teams. You have to have talent pipeline in place. You have to have a farm system and you have to take, you know, um, chances that you need to train people, give them time to grow into the roles and and alike. And so it's an analogy that I think about often when, when we're looking at a talent strategy for the team. Yeah, for sure. A lot of our listeners are not only people trying to get into the industry, but they're already in the industry and and they want to become, you know, Tom Quinn. They want to work at some great banks like you've worked at and escalate all the way to an organization like T. Rowe Price. You hit on budget 
And uh, before we started the podcast, we were bantering around the importance of being able to present budget. And what would you give for advice to people that are either just become a CISO or somebody who's a manager VP and is shooting for that? How, how do you take very technical stuff from 6,000 different cybersecurity companies? How, how do you boil that down to CEOs and to boards at major companies to, so they can understand what, what you're trying to solve? So I'm not sure that we have enough time on the podcast for, uh, <laughs> uh, for all of it, but what, what I, I, I think there's some basics that any successful program manager would need to do, regardless of your profession or industry that you may need to be in there, but you really do need to have a plan. And that plan um, should be pretty clear about your objectives, the inputs that you may need, the risks and threats that you're looking to address. So again, I, you have to have a plan. Where am I at and where do I think I want to go? I think the, the second part of that is, is socializing that. Get feedback from your peers, whether it's technology peers or business peers or other corporate risk leaders at your company, but get feedback and, and take that feedback to heart and see if they see it. the risks are the same ones that you think of as well. And then I think you have to have a view on really what's practical. So you can have a great plan, but you've got to have practical steps to get from point A to point B because you're not going to get it all done in the first month or even the first year. And that have a view about how you're going to sequence a success is key. And then I think what's super critical is expectation management. It is very important to be talking about what can and can't be achieved, what should and shouldn't be done, and then making sure, right, that expectations for everyone are the same. It's not unreasonable that things won't be perfect. It's, it's not unreasonable to have that as an outcome. And I, I think in some cases, I think that there is an over-expectation perfectness by some folks right in organizations. And I really do believe that part of it is it's demonstrating a gap in communication and a gap in expectation management. There's lots of other detailed and practical things around like real numbers, dollars and cents and things too. But I really think that those are critically important components of, of a successful program. Yeah. And I, at working with CISOs like yourself, I try to think about it in terms of moving away from this compliance security to trying to be part of the business and thinking about the business and what is the business actually trying to protect and then helping them to explain like, hey, we didn't have this last year and we were okay. Why do we suddenly need it this year? And trying to help answer that question because it's probably a natural one that's going to come up at a, a CEO or a board level. Okay, what does this do for the business as opposed to just the dollars and cents? I agree with you. I mean, you have to be able to defend why you're asking for something. And if you don't have a suitably sufficient answer, you shouldn't expect to get funded. And I think that's incumbent upon the security professional to make compelling cases. And also to the, every company has a different culture. They have different histories, different experiences, different backgrounds and alike. And that needs to also be taken into account when you're taking what, what best practices may be 
but what they mean to your company, I think that's an important thing to to consider. I'll, I'll share one approach that I found that's helpful, and that's actually just being a, and self-funding things. So I, I I like measurement, I like metrics, I like to see things trending over time. I like to ask the question, why are we doing things? And when you start measuring, right? So I, you what's what's the truism? You can't manage what you don't measure. As you start to measure the environment, you start asking those kind of questions. Invariably, I found there's old stuff that could be retired. There's licensing that could be returned and and dollars to, to come from that. There could be contracts that could be renegotiated or be a bit more efficient. And what I find is that when you start to have that commercial mindset applied to the work in front of you, you may be able to not have to ask somebody for money. You may be able to find it yourself. And I think that as a starting point for your team, for your managers, and for yourself is important because you're showing and demonstrating when asked, we were okay last year, and why do we need it this year? Or how much of this can you do yourself? You actually have an answer, right? It's, I did all these things. I funded this. I funded that. We stopped doing this. I asked for help from another group. I've done everything that I believe is possible to do this with a commercial mindset and, and trying to do it on my own. I really do need your help. And, and I think that most leaders appreciate that uh, kind of effort being applied before you really make the ask. Yeah, no, it makes total sense. So I've got uh, one last question. What advice would you give your younger self? From a career perspective, one thing it would be is don't worry about a plan, a specific plan, but you should have one. The one thing as I reflect on my experiences is always take a first principle-based approach when you're making decisions. Like, why do I really want to do this? What's really driving this? Is this an interesting opportunity for me to explore? So that's one thing is don't be bound up by a plan to be a CISO in 10 years or something. Be much more focused on principle-based approaches. Am I doing interesting work? Do I like what I'm doing? And I think there, there should be a natural evolution where you'll gravitate to something like that. And the other thing too, I would certainly tell myself is, take more opportunities to meet people and ex- get exposed to new approaches. I think I do a bit of that now and I think I'm o- okay at it, but there's been opportunities where either maybe I thought I had enough or uh, maybe I was like t- a little bit more tired than I wanted to be. But spending energy to do that, I think is valuable. And, and what I have found is every door I've walked through, every relationship that I've had an opportunity to meet somebody and learn about them and learn about what they're doing is paid back tenfold because it's amazing how the experiences, right, that people have that you would just never know about unless you took the time to actually get to know them and not just transactionally say hello to them. So spending the time to meet people, spending the extra time to learn more about them and with their experiences. Oh, that, I totally agree with both those points. And for me, having a plan is great. 
but having a ton of flexibility in the plan and enjoying that it's not a destination. If you want to become a CISO, don't spend 15 years so focused on becoming a CISO that once you accomplish, you go, okay, well, what do I do next? It's enjoy the journey. And it blends right into your second point, which just is such an excellent point of just getting to know people. Life is short. And the more that you can engage and the, the more friendships you make, in this industry, it's exponentially more fun. I think about going to RSA or going to Black Hat. And while I appreciate the business aspect of those shows, because they're very uh, lucrative for us at the end, I more look forward to sitting at the W Hotel for a couple of hours and seeing 30, 40, 50, 150 people that I know in the industry. And maybe I helped that person get their first job and now they're a CEO or, or they've helped me. They knew me when I was 20 some years old and now see my gray hair and ask me how I got old so quickly. But uh, those types of relationships and helping others and, and being helped by others is a part of the journey that both both Tom and I are about the same age. So we, we can be reflective and I would both uh, just encourage, encourage uh, the young people to listen to what Tom's saying in terms of that, because it is ultimately about the journey, not the destination. Awesome, Tom. That's all we have for today. Thanks for listening. Uh, and thank you, Tom, very much for joining us and sharing all your thoughts on uh, your cybersecurity journey. Please join us next month for another episode of the Executive Security Podcast.